The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message, they'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button and as well listen to old archive shows. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you. Good, Good morning, morning, Scott. Scott. So we're close to the deadline for RSPs, are we not? Winding well, down. Right yeah. down to the wire here. For those listeners out there say, oh yeah, right, I got to get that in. Well, lucky this year, it's the first 60 days in the year, but being a leap year, yeah. normally that would end today, mm-hmm. the 29th. However, because it's a Saturday, they've extended this to Monday, the March 2nd. Mm. So you can procrastinate another two more That's days. <laughs> Enjoy your I was going to say, it's not lucky. This is this is the procrastinator's yeah. dream come true. That's Every right. seven years, I get yeah. an extra yeah. 24 yeah. hours yeah. to yeah. contribute to my RRSP. So what a, what a deal. So yeah. uh, anyway, uh, it makes sense. And, you know, it's kind of funny. Now that tax-free savings accounts have come into kind of mainstream and people understand those, I'm, and I'm, I'm getting a lot of people basically saying, well, should I even get an RSP anymore? Like, mm-hmm. uh, again, there's that conversation, RSPs, TFSAs, mm-hmm. but there's still a lot of great reasons to get an RSP. Sticky. <laughs> Number one reason. You got you it. You got <laughs> it. Yeah, you can't, you can't get to it without a penalty. Where have you yeah. heard that before? I don't know. Osmosis. What's the next one, Scott? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, first thing. Let me see your page. <laughs> the Kreskin hat is on. That's right. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Number one reason I would suggest is... Sis Boom Ba. Oh, I'm sorry. That was a Johnny Carson. Uh, Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Think of it as a pension. Yeah. How many people say, say, I wish I didn't have that pension, that teacher's pension, that Omer's pension, the, you know, the policeman's pension, whatever the kind of pension. Everybody loves their pensions. But for some reason, they don't think of RSPs as a pension. And it's interesting. They work these identically. Except with, with an RSP, you're doing all the contributing. You're putting all the money in. Nobody's yeah. matching you. Yours. Unless you are at a group type of an RSP through, your, uh, through work where it's a defined contribution plan where you put in, you know, say 4%. The company matches 4% or, fi- uh, or half of it, 2%, which again, I'll get on my soapbox on that because if you're not maxing that out first, you got to start there because mm-hmm. they're giving you free money. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of funny. I know we talked about uh, a couple of shows ago, but right now the employers are only giving away half of what they want to or are allowed to mm-hmm. because employees are not maxing out the group RSP. That's right. a good point. There was some research on that in the U.S. and they were talking about participation and they call them 401k plans, which is the similar thing to an RRSP here. Yeah. And it was staggering the number of people that had deferred con- starting to participate in that matching program Mm -hmm. and uh and it's just and that was probably the biggest downfall to a lot of americans in terms of their own financial well-being going forward is Mm. the fact that they didn't get started on those types of plans so if you have one it's not too late to get started your new year's resolution get going sign up get started and and again it's it's never too late but boy it's free money okay and it's funny if it was a teacher's plan or any kind of pension plan or government plan Mm -hmm. you have no choice yeah they take the money off your pay Mm -hmm. absolutely no choice the only choice you have is you cannot be you can't be employed there (laughs) okay you have to quit that's the only way you get out of contributing and if you had the same mindset that an rsp is really just another form of pension 
then you would be just as disciplined. So it's kind of interesting. I took that kind of thinking and I said, okay, let's say, you know, after 10 years, a teacher makes about $100,000. They're at the top of their grid and they put about 12% of their pay into a pension. So let's say somebody at 25 just gets out of uh, university or college and starts their job and they're making, they're making a similar wage. Mm-hmm. So they start out at say 50 grand and they go up by 5,000 a year for the next 10 years. And after 10 years, they're at $100,000. And let's say they put in 12% of that money every off their pay, just like a teacher would. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's, a, you know, it's, it's, it takes discipline, but obviously it's, it's doable because if teachers can do it, why can't you? Yeah. Because you are... What happens also when you contribute through a, a group plan or at work, they take the taxes at source. Mm-hmm. So if you're taking, say, 500 a month, well, you, you may only, it's only cost you maybe 300 a month mm-hmm. because they already adjusted your income for the tax savings you'd get. You're not going to get the big refund at the end, mm-hmm. but you have more cash flow at the end of each month. So I kind of worked this out and I said, okay, let's say the first year we do $6,000 and then we jump it to 6,600. We keep increasing it as your wages go up to finally you're stuck at $100,000 after 10 years. And let's say you just do 12,000 a year after that. Well, at the end of the day, here you are at 55 years old and you have Mm $800,000 using a 6% rate of return. Now, not as good as the teacher's plan because you had nobody matching it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, the teacher's plan would be worth probably about 1.3 to 5 million, call it double even. But if you just worked another five more years and did this, you'd end up at a closer to 1.2 million. Mm-hmm. So because you, you don't have anybody matching it, and if you're doing it on, on your own, you're still sitting there at 60 years old with about $1.2 million. Mm. Well, I don't see a, a whole ton of 60-year-olds with $1.2 million in their RSP. Mm-hmm. And it's just simply because it's just the discipline of having somebody take the money off your paycheck. Yeah. And so this is why number one reason you should get an RSP <laughs> is just think of it as a pension. And uh, yeah, and as, as you said, Scott, they're sticky. Mm-hmm. And that's the number two reason really, it's a forced savings. You have this come off your pay or if, you, if it's a group RSP at work or you have a, a monthly amount going out of your bank account. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that option through work, then do it yourself. Yeah. I know it's discipline. I know there's so many things you could have done with that money that you say, I need to do this. I have this to, um, to, to pay off. But at the end of the day, you wouldn't have that choice if you had a defined, uh, defined benefit plan at work because mm-hmm. you would have the money off your pay. And the interesting thing, you know, that's a 12, you're, you're considering that's 12% basically of your pay, your gross right. pay per year, and you can contribute up to 18% mm-hmm. of your of your pay. So you could be putting in 18,000. Yeah. And, you know, the government set that rate for a specific reason, knowing that you could replace your income significantly if you maximize your RRSP every yeah. year. Yeah. And so that's the next sort of Big step is the goal, can you maximize it every year? Don't yeah. leave anything on the table. Yeah. Well, actually, to your point, Andy, if you start to take off 18% after tax, you know, that kind of save 10% of your income rule mm-hmm. comes into effect. And if you look at that, if you're on your net income after taxes, if you put 18% away, I'm sure it's close to that 10% of your take-home pay. Right. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so the number three big reason is tax-free growth. It's absolutely incredible how much money it will just grow. Because anytime you're not paying the government now and you're paying them later, what a bonus. Um, here's a case in point here. If you put 6000 into an RSP and you save 40%, you now have $2,400 that you didn't pay the government. Mm-hmm. It's sitting in your investment earning whatever rate of return. So if I use 6% again, 
30 years later, that the government's money, just the refund money, would be worth $14,000. Mm. And you can imagine what that does year after year after year after year because you're not paying it to the government. You've got that money working for you. So absolutely huge uh, benefit. It's hard to, you know, a lot of people say, I want to get those RSPs out and pay less tax. I know Andy and I did this seminar back in the fall and it actually showed the power of deferring that tax. Even though on paper it made sense to take it out early, it still didn't because of the free tax-free compounding of the RSP. Um, number four is to, uh, you know what, anytime you can save tax at a higher income bracket and pay at a lower bracket, again, always makes sense. Mm-hmm. Certainly even makes sense if say at one bracket and pay at the exact same bracket. And that's what's happened with RSPs. Generally speaking, people are working, they're in higher income brackets, retire at say the, the lower or middle bracket and a great way to say save at 40%, later on you pay at 30%. Mm-hmm. I'll take that deal anytime, Okay. Um, there's a lot of extra other benefits of an RSP. There's a first-time home buyer. You could take up to $20,000 out and pay it back over 15 years. Um, if you miss a year, you do have to pay tax on what you missed. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it makes sense, though. If you're, let's say, you're in maternity leave and your income's really low that year, you may want to miss a year. So it does give you that option. Um, the downside, though, is you are missing out on that tax-free growth we talked about. Mm-hmm. And that can really add up. So... It's not my first choice to use this um, first-time home buyers because at the end of the day, if you're getting a mortgage at say 2.6 or 2.7% and your RSP is making six, do you really want to pull the RSPs out making 6% when you could really borrow at Mm 2.7? So, and also the fact that it is sticky going back to what you're saying, Scott, Mm -hmm. but it is an option. So you have that benefit. Um, A close cousin to that benefit is called a lifelong learning plan where you can take out to $10,000 per year, up to a maximum of $20,000, and you have to repay it five years after, start repaying it five years after the the first withdrawal, and you you spread that over 10 years, the payment. So if you're, this is really an investment, because if you're coming from, say, oh, some type of vocation that really isn't that pertinent anymore, and you see it's going downhill, you need to get some extra, invest in yourself to get some extra learning in to maybe get into a different field. What a great option to use this if you haven't saved money, and then you can repay it back. Um, Number three would be income splitting with your spouse. Great idea. You're saving at whatever high tax bracket, perhaps down the road, you start to take the money out, and you get to split that at age 65 with your spouse and equalize the tax brackets. So you can both make, say, $40,000 a year and be in the 20% tax bracket. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you saved at the 40. So again, a win-win. And again, going back to uh, tax deducted at source, just a great way to have money for save, just like any pension. But as you know, we talked about just, just a second ago, you leave, don't leave the government, no, don't leave your company's money on the table. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I think with that spousal RSP too, the one thing is those pre-65 strategies. So before turning 65, you can use that spousal RSP to make withdrawals in a low income year. And, uh, and that just comes down to, you know, you're having an annual review with your financial planner and you're talking about what is, what is the goals that are happening in the next year or the next couple of years. And it might be some plan around taking, uh, slowing down at work. It might be something around, uh, or maybe there's been, um, an illness in the family and you need to take time off to help, uh, uh, an adult or, or, or a, a parent. And so, you know, your income's going to be low. Well, that's a time where you could 
dip into that spousal RRSP, right. take money out, pay a low rate of tax, mm-hmm. and then maybe put it back in once you return back to work. And also with those spousal RSPs, you can move them into a RIF and take out the minimum. And that will be taxed to the spouse that's in the lower bracket. So we, I've had a few cases where the husband's still working. He may be working past 65. And now there's like a significant amount of money sitting in the spousal RSP. Let's call it a half a million dollars. Well, we moved that into a RIF and the following year, they can take out the minimum. Well, if it's say f- 5%, you, I don't, the minimum would be about 4%. Well, that's still $20,000 that could be added to the spouse. And a lot of people don't know this because they think, well, there's that three-year rule, which does apply. That three-year rule does not apply if you move it to the RIF and you take out the minimum. Yeah, that's one of those little known little facts yeah. that uh, can add a little twist and it's a nice little planning strategy as well. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows. As well, ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Going to take a quick break. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. RSP season is here. You bet. And we're going to talk about RSPs for a lot of the show today. And, you know, there's a lot of tips you should look at, but the number one... I would suggest if you are, are if you're already contributing to an RSP, make sure you get the allocation correct. Okay, don't sit there and try to f- predict and move the money around all the time. Find out what's comfortable with you, and and again, speaking with your financial planner because sometimes left to your own devices, you may be too risky, but more so than not, you're actually too conservative. And in fact, Mercer simply did a study recently, and they looked at a thousand group RSP plans. And generally speaking, Canadians were way too conservative. And they looked at these groups, and it was funny. If you think who would be the riskiest, millennials, Gen Xs, or boomers, who do you think would be the riskiest? Millennials. Yeah, got the most time. Yeah, they got the most time. They turned out to be the most conservative. Mm. So the youngest people that have the most time (coughs) are being very conservative with their RSPs and under these group plans, which makes no sense because they're, they're currently around 30 years old or younger. They've got lots of time on their hands. They're yeah. going to take the money out and go on a vacay. They <laughs> 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 can't afford any market loss. Right, <laughs> I need I that bet. money. <laughs> well, maybe they keep switching jobs so often that they think, well, I don't want to be there because <laughs> I'll, I'll just be... Sw- <laughs> and again, that's not even true. a good reason because when you switch it from one RSP to the other, just leave it in the same kind of asset classes, mm-hmm. even if you're not going to be that employer that long. So millennials, it turns out that 15 to 20% of millennials switch their... There are day-dated funds, retirement-dated funds that would be probably 80% equities into bonds. And it made no sense at all. Funny enough, um, but they're saving a lot. So they're actually good savers, yeah. but they weren't, they're investing as if they're probably like 55, not 
25. I think you also have to be careful, too, with uh, company-issued uh, programs like that. They may put you into a default category. Exactly. And if you don't go back and check, say, hey, now I want something more aggressive, you'll mm-hmm. just sort of end up in the middle somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right. And those uh, default <clears throat> categories, quite often, they're called retirement-dated funds. So mm-hmm. they'll look at your age and say, okay, you're retiring at 60. Yeah. That's 30 years from now. So we're going to be 80% equities, yeah. 20% fixed income. Well, the millennials are actually switching out of those yeah. into something very conservative, which again, I was shocked to read this. Um, Gen, X, Gen X's, which is the next category, actually has suffered in terms of their amount they could save. Uh, probably up to mortgages up to their yin-yang right now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, having kids, they're at that next stage where they're having a tough time. So they just weren't saving enough. Mm-hmm. Um, they're investing it okay, but just not saving enough. And the boomers were the exact same as the millennials, not as bad but they're again, too conservative. So at the end of the day, you look at, okay, what's gonna perform the best if you've got a long retirement, not only to the date of retirement, but after retirement. Quite people, people are living a long time past retirement and you gotta think you're gonna have a a 25 to 30 year retirement. How do you invest for that too? Mm -hmm. And I know you're looking at a, you know, lots of corrections and things going on the last week. Yeah, we were just, I mean, talking about, I'd call it the big picture and uh, what I call the big picture and market corrections that we've been hearing about in this last week and particularly around the coronavirus and yeah. how, or COVID-19 and the impact on economic forecasts going forward. Um, actually, when I was thinking, you were talking about the millennials and I was thinking about a story because I just met with a couple who were, the children of parents of clitter clients of mine, mm-hmm. and they're in their early 30s and uh, have two children now. So they're just sort of that mm-hmm. getting started stage. And we were having a discussion about RRSPs and contributing for this year. And um, I was making the argument, you know, how would you describe your risk profile? Are you conservative? Are you moderate? Are you aggressive? And we have a test to understand more specifically what it is, but I was interested in what their opinion was. And they, um, and the wife said, well, I'm, I would be you know, moderate, I'd be more conservative. And the husband said, well, I'd be aggressive. (laughs) And now we're at the opposite ends of the spectrum. And so, um, but he had an excellent point because he said, you know, we're in our thirties right now. What argument can you present to me that I should have any fixed income in my portfolio? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, you know, it certainly, you would feel in in periods of downturns like like we're having right now, how are you going to feel at night if your portfolio went down by 20%? Would you be comfortable if you had a hundred thousand and it was now worth 80? Mm -hmm. How would that make you feel? And he was steadfast not a problem, no issues at all. And uh, so in fact, it was all in. (laughs) You know what? 100% equities, no fixed income at all. And um, just 100% focused on the long term. Where am I going to be 30 years from now? What happens between today and then? It's not going to matter. There's going to be all kinds of things. And that's where I sort of got into this discussion I want to talk about, which is the big picture and market corrections. And um, so we have this coronavirus issue coming up. We're hearing forecasts about could it become a pandemic? Mm -hmm. What does that mean to economic forecasts and our our capacity to continue, the stock market continue to grow as well? And they're even likening it to the back of the the financial crisis, which happened in uh, 2007. It could be as bad as that from an economic perspective. Uh, But the fundamentals, you know, when you look back historically, and this is always important to sort of step back and look at the big picture and understand where have we come from? How does that fit into it? And, and the big, the big thing I think about is the difference between there's one thing called a correction Mm -hmm. and one thing called a bear market Mm -hmm. and corrections are when the market has gone down by at least 10%. 
and corrections happen fairly frequently. And we looked at I looked at some research back to the starting in 1950s, so the last 70 years, and there's been 24 corrections. So this may be actually the 25th, depending. <laughs> on, <laughs> I think this week we had a point where it was down 10. percent um, So this would be the 25th. So roughly about every three. 2.83 years, yeah. we get a correction of 10% or more. And um, whereas bear markets, which are a 20% decline, there's only been six of those over the last period, since the 50s as well. So only about every 11 years. Um, and, and and even those, the corrections, five of them, uh, you were positive after 12 months. So everything had recovered back, within 12 yeah. months. And there was only one, and that was in 2000 and 2001, the dot-com uh, bubble, and then uh, the 9-11 crisis, where there was actually back-to-back negative years for that bear market. So even during that whole time period, that in the, since 1950 till today, the Toronto stock market has averaged 9%. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can see the volatility and you know it's happening, uh, but when you're in it, it always feels, it creates that sense of uncertainty and you lose some of that sleep at night factor and it makes you start to wonder, should I be doing something differently? And everyone's been talking about what's been happening this week and how the markets are going down, but that being said, and relating it to the coronavirus and such and economics around the world. But again, we were kind of due for that. I mean, things have been going up prior to that for a long period of time. So it's the coronavirus just yeah. may be the trigger. Here. It was the trigger yeah. because you, you think about those we averages, yeah. th- that those averages, yeah. a correction every three years, but we did have a correction in 2018 of 10% or more. Uh, so it's not that long ago. And uh, and the last bear market though was quite a bit. It's been quite a while since we've seen that. But you think back and, you know, we're talking about coronavirus, but you think back just in the last 20 years, some of the events that have happened that we forget about. Mm-hmm. There was uh, the, the U.S. subprime, subprime crisis, yeah. which happened in 2007. That was a big one. We had the Iraq war. We had 9-11. We had the dot-com collapse. We had uh, the Euro crisis and the Canadian dollar hit its all-time bottom of 62 cents in 2001. So that's just all happened in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. And then you, you expand that out a little further. You look back at the 20 years before that. We had the Gulf War. We had Black Monday in 1987. We had the end of the Cold War. And we also had interest rates. Our prime rate was 22.75% back in 1981. And then even going back another 20 years, back over 60, like in the 60 years ago, the Arab oil embargo, the Vietnam mm-hmm, War, mm-hmm. inflation hit a high of over 11% in the, in the 70s, and, uh, and the Kennedy assassination mm. in the 60s yep. as well. And going back further, the next, even 20 more years before that, Wars. in the 80 years, the Korean War, yeah. um, World War II mm-hmm. had started, and then that had ended and the Cold War began. Mm-hmm. So despite all of these major uh, world events that happened and economic events that happened, our, our Toronto stock market still averaged 9% per year since mm. 1950. Mm. And so I think what everybody, I want everybody to do is just sort of step back and think that, yes, we have an event happening right now, and it is something that is going to impact volatility in the short term. But as we're sitting here a year from today, it more often in almost all cases, we can look back and say, that was an opportunity. That was an opportunity if we were focused and with discipline, we could have rebalanced our portfolio or we could have added additional cash at that point. And sometimes it just need you need some handholding to be able to yeah. do that. So it's a good time to be able to talk to your financial planner or your meetings right now, talking about RRSPs, et cetera. Think about that as maybe this is a good opportunity. It's so often we talk about RSPs and we're here at the end of the 
the deadline, mm-hmm. and it feels like the stock markets have always been at a high yeah. because money's flowing in. There yeah. is money flowing in, and there's a sort of artificial bubble, and everybody feels like, well, I'm buying at a high. Well, maybe this is one of those times yeah. where if you were a procrastinator, yeah, it actually paid off, and mm-hmm. you might be buying at a nice entry point at a low point. So yeah. maybe good on you. Timing. Good on you, procrastinators. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny enough, even in the last 11 years, there's been a lot of volatility. And, you know, as you mentioned, uh, 2018 in December, it wasn't quite a bear market because that's 20% or greater, but it was 19.8%. Mm-hmm. Okay. And basically that happened all in December. So it would have been a very, very short bear market, but uh, j- during the day it actually went over 20%, but it ended the day just below it, 19.8%. So anyhow, when you start to create your allocation, you think, okay, well, let's say if I want to go 75% equities, 25% fixed income, um, and you, and you kind of rebalance that periodically. Well, I looked at the last 11 years, and you know, there's a lot of different places you could put money. And the worst purse, place, rather, would be just cash. Right. Mm-hmm. You look at 11-year return, if you put $1,000 into a T-bill, um, which is just basically short-term investments, 11 years later, your $1,000 would be worth $1,098. Wow. Yeah, 0.85% return. Mm. Inflation has been 1.7 right. during the last decade. You should have bought everything 11 years ago because you can't afford the same stuff now because <laughs> your money <laughs> hasn't right. grown up, grown as fast as <laughs> what the Stock price up. of goods. Yeah. <laughs> now, going past that, you look, okay, well, going to your point, Andy, what did the Toronto stock market do? Well, it averaged 9.21% over those 11 years. In fact, there was two negative years along the way too, back in uh, 2015 and 2018. Mm-hmm. Okay, emerging markets, they did 9.96%. Now that would be China, India, um, you know, Singapore, et cetera, smaller countries or emerging markets, as you say. And then you say, okay, what did the US do? It did 15.35% in that 11 years. Mm. So your $1,000, if it was all in the US, would have done $4,809 is, is what it would be worth right now. Funny enough, if you looked at the previous 10 years, US was the worst. It was the worst performer. They called it the last decade. In fact, you had a zero return the previous 10 years. And Canada was one of the best. Mm-hmm. So the whole point is, if you're already gonna find out the allocation, I'm gonna go so much fixed income, and then the equity part, have it diversified throughout the world. Um, if it's good enough for a Canada pension plan to do that, because they don't put it all, all, all the Canadian equities, um, their investments in Canadian equities. In fact, only 15% of our Canadian pension plan is in Canada. Mm. They, they have more in the U.S. equities than they do in Canadian ones. And that was, you know, the, the pr- when I think back to that decade when the U.S. did so poorly mm-hmm. and Canadian stocks actually did quite well. They, they held their own and they didn't do too bad. But what it set up was a, was a, a, a trap because what people then became comfortable with is I'm going to hold on to my Canadian yep. stocks because they have done well. Oh, and right. so for the last decade, those that kept their Canadian holdings did 9%. That's okay. But they missed out on the 15%. Yeah. So you, you get tr- entrenched in thinking that you've got the right you're in the right place. This yeah. has to be the best decision because I did so well when everything else wasn't. Mm-hmm. But it's amazing how quickly it can turn. And it was hard to convince people to diversify out of Canada mm-hmm. over the last decade until now, because guess what? It's yeah. been doing so well and exactly. Canada hasn't. Oh, maybe oh. I should have more U.S. now. Yeah. yeah. How much more money is being flowed into the U.S. after the fact, yes. which again is human nature. It's kind of interesting. Over the last 11 years, the U.S. was the top performing market three of those years. Um, emerging markets was the top performing market for also three years, funny enough. 
Now, there's also a few years where it was the worst market emerging markets. And uh, that being said, the U.S. has actually never been even below average um, in the last 11 years. So they've been, that's why they've done so well. But Canada has also been the top performing market in 2016. So one of the years was, a, was the best performing market. So at the end of the day, I don't really know which one. And if you look at this chart I'm looking at, you'd have no idea which is going to be the next best performing area. Bottom line is own them all yeah. because you end up with <laughs> a, a, an average return, which will be good, with less risk. Then even if the return ends up being 9%, as Andy had said with the Canadian, and you end up averaging nine, it will be a lot less volatile if you own emerging markets, US markets, European markets, as well as Canadian markets. And you'll end up with a, you know, riding through these ups and downs that you're getting through right now. We call that correlation analysis, where you want you don't want to have things that are all going to move at this in the same yeah. direction at the same time. You want to have investments which can complement or offset. If one area is declining, other investments are improving mm -hmm. or rising. So, correlation analysis, yeah. which is also just part of the financial planning process when we look at somebody's portfolio. It's kind of interesting, actually. The emerging markets is one of the least correlated mm. to the U.S. stock market. And you'll see when it's doing really well, quite often the U.S. one isn't doing as well. Now, 2009 was a good example when emerging markets did 54%. Well, U.S. markets did nine. Still pretty good at nine, but you missed out on the 54. But if you averaged them all together, you'd see the, the swing patterns, as Andy's talking about, wouldn't be so great right. by having all of them. So the, the idea is, um, first thing is, make sure you do the RSP because it's your pension yeah. fund. Okay, number one, just do it. Yes. Mm. Because if you don't do it, you won't have any money in there. Even, if you're, in a, even if you're in the wrong portfolio, yeah. uh, having money in a portfolio is better than yeah, nothing. Yeah. Then you have something to talk about. Okay, exactly. now where am I going to invest this money? Yes. The next thing is, well, if I'm going to do it, let's allocate it properly. So that's what we're going to do this. So second, now I see a few people, it's interesting, they're using RSPs almost like an emergency fund, which makes no sense to me. No. So if they need, say, $7,000, They'll say, you know, Don, I could use $10,000. Cash me out. Um, out of my RSP because I got a cruise coming up. I don't have the money. And after tax, I'll get my 7000 So I'll pay 30% tax. That's the last thing you want to do. Um, because if, again, if you're treating it like a pension, you'd never go to your pension and say, oh, I could use a few dollars out of my pension right now. I got a cruise. Mm. It wouldn't even occur to you. But for some reason, people do think of it this way. And I want to kind of go over those numbers when we come back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. 905-529-7165. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call. And don't forget the website at andyanddon.com. Going to take a quick break. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Continuing with RSPs. Yes. Like I said, it's the season, so let's, uh, let's go right into this RSP topic today. And with RSPs, we were just saying just before the break, how you know some people may look at an RSP because it is liquid. You can cash these in. Mm -hmm. You know, something might come up. You say, you know what? I could probably use this. I, I've got some big bills. I should, or I got a big opportunity to do something fun. I, I, I want to take this money out. Yeah. And I look at that and I say, first of all, last thing you really should look at doing. 
Because in the example, if you need $7,000, you'd have to take out 10,000 out of your RSP. 3,000 would go to the income tax. And that's if you're just in a, the average tax bracket. That's a plane ticket for someone else on the trip. Oh man, that's a lot of money. And so if you borrowed $7,000 and you say, you know what? I can get this on my line of credit at 6%. For six years, I could pay 116 a month. Well, the interest on that would be $1,352, which is a heck of a lot less than that 3,000 you just paid in income tax. Yeah. And by the way, that $10,000 would have grown to 14,145 in six years. Mm-hmm. So here you take the 10 grand out and you're also, so it's costing you two things, $3,000 in tax, Plus, you're, you're losing the opportunity cost of it growing. Growth, yeah. And it, let's say, again, just grows at 6%, the same as your loan rate. It costs you, you know, the swing is $7,185 just by taking out that $10,000. And that's only in six years. If we compound that 25 years down the road, it's massive how much these, you know, little withdrawals, you call them little, but um, the compounding effect that money makes a big difference. Um, and again, that's at a 6%. If you could borrow at 6%, what if you said, okay, Don, you know, I don't have any access to credit. I, I'm going to have to put it on my credit card. Well, let's say it's 26%. Mm. Okay. Do you still take it out of your RSP? And I'd say no. Because if you could pay that back over three years, the, uh, the payment would be $282 a month. The interest on that would be 3153 the same amount as you would have given mm-hmm. to the government. Mm-hmm. And you'd still have the $14,000 growing. Right. So it's really, it's, it's insane to, to think on how much money it really costs you. What people don't see is the opportunity cost of leaving it in. At the end of the day, don't take the trip. Yeah, just do, yeah, <laughs> don't take it. It's no good. trip today. No Trust fun me. for you. A month later, you're going to say, you might say, oh, that was a pretty good trip, but boy, I feel a little lighter right. in my portfolio. Yeah. And, and, I, and then you, all you need is somebody like me to tell you what the real cost was 20 years later. It's tough mm. to replace it too. It, it's, oh, it's very tough to replace yeah. it because, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. <clears throat> as much as some people have great intentions mm-hmm. to, impla- to, to replace it, I've had some people say, I'll take it out just now, but don't worry, before the end of February, I'll replace it. And that way, you know, it didn't cost me any tax because mm-hmm. I have the RSP room. Well, so, and, I, and I don't even know if that's anybody's ever done that replaced it. Mm-hmm. Okay, great intention. It all sounded good on paper until life got in the way. Yeah. Um, now, some people will say, you know, I can move my, I got some loser investments, um, some stocks that aren't doing so well. Let's say there's BlackBerry stock or something. I want to hold on to them and I'm going to move that into my RSP. And uh, that's fine, but don't just move them in kind. And I know we've talked about this before, but there's this weird little rule called a superficial loss rule. And if you move, let's say you pay $10,000 for this stock and it's now worth $5,000 and you're going to move the $5,000 into your RSP. Well, you think, okay, I'll get that loss, couple loss. It triggers that loss. So I got a $5,000 loss and it says, no, you don't get that because of the superficial loss rule. Um, In fact, you would have to sell it, move it into your RSP, the $5,000 and you can't buy the same stock for 31 days. But 31 days later, you can buy, buy back that exact same stock and you would get that capital loss. The opposite is not true. If you bought a $5,000 stock and it's now worth 10000 and you move that directly into your RSP, shockingly, you still have to pay capital gains on that. Mm-hmm. They, they don't have a superficial gain rule. <laughs> they only have a superficial loss rule. So if you do move it in kind, it does trigger the gain. 
And again, one of these little, I don't quite know why they have this, but it's one of those little nuances that the government wins on this rule. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I definitely wouldn't want to do that. And finally, if you ever get a big windfall and say, oh, you got, uh, you're earning 110000 a year and you've got all of a sudden somebody, you came into 50000 in inheritance, let's say. You say, you know what? I'm going to throw that 50000 into my RSP. I would suggest that's a great idea. However, I wouldn't claim it all in the first year. Because if you did claim it all in one year, it brought you down to different tax brackets. Mm -hmm. You started in a 43% bracket on part of your money. It went down to the 38% bracket, then down to 33. And eventually, some of that, a good portion of this tax would save you only at the 29.65% tax bracket. So you go through all these brackets. At the end of the day, it saves you $17,473. So you get this big refund. And a lot of people say, hey, that's great. I got 17 grand and I got this money now. Well, if you leave it in and you just take out enough to bring you down to that 95,000 taxable income mark, you would end up saving 14,007, um, sorry, you'd save yourself about 6,400 a year in income tax. And the grand total on that $50,000, you would end up saving $4,231 um, extra. So you'd end up with $21,000 in refunds, $21,705 in refunds, rather than 17473 you do have to wait do it over a few years. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, the same amount of money is still sitting in your RSP. It's still making the exact same thing, but you end up with an extra four, 4200 bucks that you wouldn't have had by just claiming it all in one year. The trick here, though, is make sure you tell your tax preparer what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Because if you give them the slip, they will claim the whole thing. Right. Um, and, and make sure you tell your accountant or the tax preparer, bring me down to this specific number. And in this case, it would be 95260 and have my taxable income at that level. And if you do that every year, you'll end up $4,000 heavier in your pocket. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Check out their website at andyanddon.com. As well, you can call now, leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. Tis the season for RSPs. <laughs> That's right. We've been talking a lot about RSP strategies for those people that are accumulating and building their wealth within their RSP plans. And now when you think about it, if, 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 you know, listener out there thinking, well, geez, I've already got all this money in RRSPs now. I'm getting closer and closer to retirement. And I'm thinking, is, should I be worried about a correction and the yeah. impact of that? Is there, what strategies could I be thinking about in terms of withdrawals from my RIFs or RRSPs at this point? And uh, so in many cases, people do defer taking money out of their RRSPs or converting it to a RIF until mm -hmm. age 71. Um, and in many cases, though, people, they're looking at a strategy where they want to start taking money out earlier than that. And uh, so... 
in a period when markets are in a downswing or in a bear market or in a correction uh, period, those withdrawals or those downturns in the early stages, we call this the um, uh, the sequence of return issues or sequence of return strategy, it can be it can really have a big impact on the future value of your RSP or your RIF plan, mm. because when markets are down and you're selling investments to generate a monthly income, mm-hmm. you're often having to sell more of the investment to create that same monthly right. cash flow, your, your retirement paycheck. And so when you think about, and, and a lot of times people do take a monthly income from their RIFs or, uh, or sometimes it's an annual payout. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when we think about the strategy around that, the short, there's can be a short-term bucket and a long-term bucket. And to give you an example, if you have a portfolio, let's say it's a half a million dollars that you have in your RIF and uh, you're taking money out on a monthly basis and you're comfortable with, with risk, you're sort of a moderate aggressive type of individual, so you've got 70% of your portfolios in stocks and 30% of your uh, portfolios in fixed income, a 70-30 mix. And, um, and a lot of times people might end up with a portfolio, it could be a single investment. We were talking about target dated funds earlier on. And what these are, they're a single investment, but the investment is being changed over time as you get older to become more conservative. Mm. Or perhaps you've got a single investment that is a balanced fund. So it has 70% of it is equity and 30% of it's fixed income. So when you make a monthly withdrawal from those types of single investment uh, RIFs, that you're taking a portion from stocks and you're taking a portion from bonds, right. a portion from the equities, a portion from the fixed income every month. Mm-hmm. And so by default, then you're selling those equities while they're low. Right. And if you had a choice and you could leave the equity portion and just take from the fixed income portion during down periods, right. that would enhance the return overall. Mm-hmm. And so when you're building your RIF portfolio, if you had two separate pieces inside your RIF portfolio. One piece was equity, and that's 70% of your portfolio. So let's say a $500,000 RIF, you'd have $350,000 in a equity fund, and you'd have $150,000 in a fixed income fund. Mm-hmm. Now, as you're taking your monthly withdrawals, you could direct how that money comes out. Right. So in, in, in a, on a regular year, you would take 70, 30, 70 from the one piece and 30% from the other piece. So if it was a thousand a month, 700 and 300. But let's say we're in a period right now where we have a prolonged period for the next couple of months where markets are down, you could switch to a hundred percent coming out of the fixed income pool and leave the equity portion. So you're not selling those stocks. Why not just do that all the time? Having selling it just from the fixed income, yes, and leave the equities. Yeah. Well, you also want to take advantage when so when equities are rising, yeah. and doing well, you it's not it's okay to take money out while they're going up. Okay, right. Yeah. You're selling yeah. fewer shares at a right. higher market level, and uh, and you're keeping the overall balance. So the mm-hmm. trick in this is that at the end of the cycle, when as things recover, and usually takes about a year, then you want to switch back so that you can rebalance the portfolio mm-hmm. back to that 70-30 mix. Because remember what's happening, you're taking more out of your fixed income. By default, your equities are going to become larger percentage of your mix. So you're getting a riskier portfolio if you don't then subsequently change the strategy. So it's for risk is the reason you're You want to rebalance it and maintain the risk. And uh, so it's a lot to think about if you're in that retirement phase where you're starting to draw money out of your RSPs as a RIF 
or a lift, whichever it might be. And, um, and I think it's important to understand what the withdrawal strategy should be. The final thing we just wanted to talk about is beneficiaries when it comes to RRSPs and RIFs. And often, um, and this goes for sure with people with their group plans, sometimes they've ma- named their spouse as a, as a beneficiary, but now maybe they're separated or divorced, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe a spouse has passed away and you still have the, a, a beneficiary there, which doesn't make sense anymore. Right. And a lot of times people might often think about naming their children as beneficiaries. Now, spouses make sense because in general, you can roll over those RIFs or RSPs to your spouse without any tax implications. And then at their death is when the tax is Paid, the second death. But when it comes to children, it's a different, different category, different kettle of fish. If you name a child as a beneficiary of a RSP or a RIF, they're going to receive the gross amount. There's mm-hmm. going to be no tax withheld. There's no requirement by any financial institution to withhold tax. And then the tax still has to be paid yeah. at death. And that's going to happen through the estate. So we see troubles where people end up with unequal estate settlements where some child gets a large amount, which was a payout from an RSP or a right. RIF, yeah. and another child who's a share of the other assets, the non-registered assets or a house perhaps, ends up with having to pay the tax yeah. on that RSP or yeah. RIF. On their siblings' so, inheritance. On their siblings' <laughs> inheritance. <laughs> nice. That doesn't set up great Christmas dinner no, conversation. No, trust no, me. no, not at all. So, uh, lots, to know, lots to think about in RRSPs. I think the, the bottom line is when you're sitting down with your financial planner, Tell them about what's going on in your life. Tell them about what you're thinking in the next 12 months. They can't read your minds, but that also gives us a chance then to think about the strategies that are going to make the most sense Mm -hmm. to maximize your retirement plan. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Scott. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.